people joining us from California. Um, I'm going to talk this evening about Soanka, the song of the grass hut. But before I get into Soanka, I want to talk about uh, the person who wrote the Soanka, wrote the song of the grass hut, Shito Shuchan, or Sekito Kisan in Japanese. Uh, Joan, do you use the Chinese or Japanese when you talk about these, these old folks? I tend to use the Chinese. Oh, good. Me too. Okay. So Shito Shuchan, Sekito Kisan in Japanese, lived from 700 to 790. So I'm going to talk a little bit about him before I get into the song of the grass hut. Uh, he's a very important figure in the Saodong or Soto lineage. Again, he lived 700 to 790. And he's much better known for writing um, the Sando Kai, as it's pronounced in Japanese, the harmony of difference and sameness, which maybe you, you all chant occasionally. Um, and so I want to say a little bit about that, just a little. Uh, it's very, that's a very important poem, uh, sim, you know, similar in length to the Song of the Grass Hut. Um, and that one is more important kind of philosophically. It's the basis for the Soto and really the Zen um, uh, philosophical dialectics. So it's called the heart in, in our, well, actually in Cultivating the Empty Field, which Joan mentioned, uh, is where that a trans, my translation of that appears along with the first ever appearance of the Song of the Grass. Do they still, do they translate that? Or do they chant that at, at San Francisco Zen Center? I don't know. Well, I want to mention that um, at least for as long as I was there, it was never chanted. And we, in this practice place, use the San Francisco Zen Center chant book. And that's the one edition we've made is the Song of the Grass Hut. I don't know if they, if they chant that there, but they chant it in Minnesota. They chant it in my places. And uh, yeah, anyway, so I, it first appeared in, in print in Cultivating the Empty Field where I translated it. But before I get to the song of the grass hut, the harmony of difference and sameness um, is very important because it's this basic uh, philosophical context of the polarity or the dialectic between, um, well, difference and sameness or the particulars and the universal, uh, the phenomenal and the ultimate. And um, so... um, in that in that um, uh, in that poem, it talks about uh, difference and sameness and ha- and harmonizing them. So the, it's a very it's very important philosophically. And one of the and the one line I want to mention in it um, is that according with sameness, or in one translation, merging with sameness is still not enlightenment. So the point of that text is that. Uh, we get, we have in our zazen uh, practice, we have some uh, sense or experience of what we might call sameness, oneness, the ultimate, the universal. But the point of our practice is not to realize emptiness or realize the ultimate or realize oneness. In many in many spiritual traditions, that's the point of the practice is to realize oneness, to real, uh, you know, to realize the Godhead or whatever. Uh, but in our practice, 
the point is um, to have some sense of that, but to bring it into the differences, to bring it into our everyday activity. And actually, they're not they're not separate. So this this um, not to get too uh, too theoretical, but this comes out of the Huayan tradition in China, and this is the basis of uh, three generations after Shito Dongshan, who was the founder, technically the founder of Zhaodong or Soto Zen. Do you ever chant the Hokkyo Zamai, the Song of the Jewel Mare Samadhi? Well, that, Wednesday. Oh, good. Okay. Well, that that text goes further into it, and there's a five-fold relationship, sometimes called the five degrees or the five ranks. That's a Soto Zen primary philosophical uh, um, uh, teaching about how difference and sameness, or or the ultimate and the particular, integrate. And look again, the point is. In, in this uh, uh, harmony of difference and sameness, the point is to bring realization of the ultimate into our everyday lives. So this is why, you know, I uh, really like t- teaching in, as I do in Chicago, in a non-residential lay practice place, which is, I guess, what you have here too, uh, and that uh, we... And, and my old mountain source sangha in the Bay Area, and there's a couple of people from there. Welcome. Uh, uh, so, uh, this, uh, th- how we bring this into uh, our experience in the world is the point of our practice, the point of Zen, the point of Zoto Zen, Zen particularly. But this is also this is the point of uh, Buddhist practice, really. Uh, some nirvana and samsara. Okay, so that's the that's the sandokai, the harmony of difference and sameness, and that's by Shuto or Sekito, and so that's more like the philosophical basis for Soto Zen. So Anka, the song of the of the grass hut, is the practice. How it's actually practiced. This is about this this poem, this song. Uh, that we're going to talk about tonight is uh, is how to establish a practice place. And, uh, you know, the job of Zen priests is how, and what Zen priests uh, learn is how to set up a Zendo, how to set up a place of practice. And that's particularly interesting in our current um, COVID pandemic situation, our current Zoom Zendo situation. Uh, but that's, that's what the song of the grass hut is about. It's about how do we find our place of practice. Um, so that's what I'm, that's what I want to talk about in terms of this this uh, poem. And it's called a song. So on ka so means uh, grass. On means hermitage or hut. Ka means song. Just like uh, the uh, Song, the song of the Jewel Mare Samadhi is also called a song. And, of course, uh, we don't know if there was actually a melody originally for these poems. Um, I, think, I think maybe there was. That's what they're called. And as you all know, it's easier to memorize. These were all kept alive through oral tradition, so in, in, in monasteries. And... Um, 
you know, monks memorized texts. That's what monks do in all, all kinds of monastic traditions, Western as well as in, in Asian traditions. But you all know that it's easier to memorize a text when, it's, um, when there's a melody, when there's a song. So how many of you could, could recite the lyrics to some Beatles song? <laughs> Patrick raised his hand immediately. Uh, yeah, so if you know, that if there's a melody, if there's a you know a tune, it's much easier to remember the, the words. So, so I don't know what, it's been lost, what, even the, whether or not there was actually a melody to the song in the grass that we don't know. But, you know, probably. Okay, so I want to talk about, oh, let me say something about the character for Hermitage. And then I'm going to tell some stories, a couple stories about Shito before I get into the text uh, itself. But uh, Hermitage on there, uh, you know, this hut, he says in the text is 10 feet square. And uh, probably um, Shito's hut was uh, pretty small. It was uh, built on a rock near his large monastery, a big rock. I've seen pictures of the rock. It's still there. Um, uh, and a fellow from San Francisco Zen Center was traveled in China and took the photos of it. But um, this this uh, character on, which means Hermitage, uh, many um, uh, temples in in uh, Japan are called on. There's other 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 names for cat for temples. But some of them are very big and elaborate, <laughs> very big and elaborate hermitages or huts. Anyway, okay. Uh, so um, before I go to the text of the of the uh, song of the grass hermitage, a um, couple stories somewhere here. Oh dear, where is it? My cat knocked it over earlier. Um, somewhere. Oh, Did you say the cat knocked it over? Yes. <laughs> that frisky cat. Bessie, I, uh, she's not in the room right now because she, <laughs> she would. Um, anyway. <laughs> um, this is from uh, Dogen's extensive record, which uh, Joan mentioned before. And, he, and, and uh, Dogen tells numbers of stories about uh, Chateau, but I'm going to mention a couple of them. Um, just to get a little idea of Chateau, and I'll say a little bit more about Chateau, but um, so um, here's one that I like, um, and there's many of them in here, but um, look them up in the index, but um, Um, so, um, sometimes they just say a monk asked, you know, the teacher, in this case, it's, they give them, they give the monk's name because he later became a teacher himself. Tian Wang Dawu asked Jito, what is the essential meaning of the Buddha Dharma? So th- this is the kind of question, you know, that sometimes students ask teachers and, you know, you might ask Joan sometime, and she might have some answer. And I, 
Uh, anyway, I can tell stories about that question. But Shinto said, not to attain, not to know. That's a pretty good answer. Um, Dao said, beyond that, is there any other pivotal point or not? Shito said, the wide sky does not obstruct the white clouds drifting. So I love that image. The wide sky does not obstruct the white clouds drifting. Um, Dogen says something about it, but it's anyway. Um, And you could see how that has to do with uh, the universal and the particular, but it's a very practical kind of uh, saying worth remembering. The wide sky does not obstruct the white clouds drifting when you're sitting in Zazen and clouds come up, (laughs) thoughts and feelings. The wide sky does not obstruct their drifting. Actually, the clouds don't obstruct the wide sky either. Anyway, that's one saying from Shuto. Uh, one more. Oh, and this is a story about um, Shuto and Mazu. Mazu or Baso in Japanese were the two great te- great masters in the 700s. Uh, there were others, but um, Three generations after Shito is Dongshan Liangjie, um, the founder is called, considered the founder of Saodong or Soto Zen. Who he wrote he's, he wrote the Jewel Marriage Samadhi, and uh, there are lots of stories about him. You can see them in my book. Just this is it. Um, Mazu was the other great teacher, and there were there were students who went back and forth between the two of them. Mazu, three generations after Mazu, was Linji, uh, Rinzai in Japanese, founder of the, the one of the other five houses of Chan, which eventually became one of the two main schools in in, um, in uh, Japan. So here's a story. Um, So Dogen was telling the story. <clears throat> Zen master Dong Yin Feng was leaving Mazu, his teacher. And Mazu said, where are you going? Dong Yin Feng said, I'm going to see Shito. So often monks then went back and forth between the two of them. Dong Yin Feng said, uh, oh, Mazu said to him, Shito's path is slippery. Dong Yinfeng said, I'm bringing with me a, a tent pole for traveling theaters. According to the situation, I will improvise. He immediately departed. As soon as he reached Shuto, Yinfeng immediately circumambulated the meditation hall one time, shook his monk's staff to make a sound, stood before Shuto and asked, what is the essential meaning? Shuto said, blue sky, blue sky. Dong Yingfeng was speechless. What would you say? He returned to, to Mazu and told the story to Mazu. Mazu said, you should go again. And when he says blue sky, you should immediately make a sound of crying. Dong Yingfeng went to Shito again and asked the same question. What is the essential meaning? 
Shuto immediately made a sound of crying. Dong Yingfeng was again speechless and returned back to Mazu. Mazu said, I told you that Shuto's path was slippery. So anyway, those are a couple of stories about Shuto. Just thought I'd throw those in there. Okay. Um, so, Song of the Grass Hut. I'm going to go through it sort of um, line by line, but I'm going to um, emphasize certain lines. Um, so it starts... I don't know if um, maybe just to, to start, if you can, if somebody has the text to screen share just to put it up at the beginning. Yeah, we'll get that up. Okay, but I'll, I'll just proceed. So, um, and I and I just to have it at the beginning, and then I'll, I'll ask you to take it down. Um, so it starts. I've built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. When it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. Now it's been lived in, covered by weeds. So, um, yeah, uh, this is a, a grassroots hermitage. Um, and uh, he says there's nothing of value. He's, there's, he's, there's no valuables there. Uh, it's just very simple. It's just a, a grassroots hermitage, a grass hut. and. Um, after eating, I just relax and enjoy a nap. Now, um, and to relax and enjoy a nap after eating, you know, um, that's just sort of living naturally. Um, when it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. So uh, he's built this this hut with grass, and 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 uh, weeds appear in the grass in the hut. And uh, there's not so many of these kind of thatched huts left in Japan because they're expensive to repair. So, but they, they but it used to be a style of, of, uh, of homes. Uh, and uh, now once it's lived in, it's covered by weeds. So he's talking about um, his practice too. He's talking about um, uh, being covered by weeds. So Suzuki Roshi talks about, uh, weeds growing and uh, composting them and and mind weeds. So he's also talking about zazen here and uh, relaxing, enjoying a nap. Uh, that's not how we usually think of, you know, uh, uh, rigorous zazen practice. But um, we'll come back to this idea of relaxing um, again. Um, uh, Chateau's hut was built on the rock. Chateau means above the rock, literally. Sekito. Seki is rock. To means above. Um, so um, there's liter- there was literally a rock near his. So he had he had many students in his monastery, but he had this little hermitage off to the side of the monastery where he went and just lived peacefully. Um, the person in the hut lives here calmly, not stuck to inside, outside, or in between. So that's kind of a um, strange statement. Um, inside, uh, so, he's, so he's not caught anywhere. Not, um, uh, later on we'll talk about turning the light within. And then coming without. So in the in the harmony of difference and sameness, he's talking about uh, turning. He's talking about 
the ultimate, which we maybe experience in meditation, turning within and introspection, and then the outside going in, into the world. And he, but he's not caught by either. But then what's this in-between? So I'm interested in what you think about uh, this in-between is. So I, I will try and leave time afterwards for comments and responses and discussion questions. Um, but this, uh, this interesting statement. But the point is, he's not stuck anywhere. He's not abiding anywhere. So he's not caught. He's not caught by attachment to inside. He's not caught by attachment to outside. Just being calm. So this is um, this is interesting now. Um, so actually, if you, I think uh, maybe I'll have you I'll bring it back, but you can take take down the the text now. Uh, I'm just going to be reading from it. But uh, yeah, thank you. I want to I want to see you all. <laughs> um, so this this uh, idea of not being stuck, not abiding anywhere, not abiding outside, not abiding inside. And what is this not abiding in between? You might think, oh, I won't abide outside, I won't abide inside. But, you know, maybe I'll hang out, you know, in both of them, or maybe I'll hang out in neither of them, or maybe I'll, you know, what is this in between? Is it, is it in the weeds? You know, where, where is this in between? Um, but again, living calmly. Not abiding it, not abiding either outside, inside, or in between. Maybe the dude abides, but Shrito doesn't abide anywhere. So, um, and living calmly. So, places worldly people live, he doesn't live. Realms worldly people love, she doesn't love. So, it's this is a retreat from the worldly. And part of our practice is to step aside from worldly values. So, uh, you know, it, we go back into the world and um, there's a line further down where I'll talk about this, this rhythm of practice that uh, he talks about philosophically in the harmony of difference and sameness. But here he's talking about how to establish a place of practice, how to establish this grass hut is a metaphor for how we build our practice place, whether it's a, a temple, a zendo, or just our own place where we practice our own, our own, well, in, in, in our current context, our own little, little cube in the Zoom world or whatever, our own little place where we sit at home, our own way of practicing in the middle of this interesting, terrible situation of uh, the COVID that's spreading everywhere and the pandemic of systemic racism that we know about and the pandemic of um, difficult elections and the pandemic of climate chaos and, you know, all the pandemics that we are living in. How do we um, not live where worldly people live, uh, not love what worldly people love. 
So this is a real question here. How do we be in the world but not of it? How do we step up, step away from, um, I don't know what, consumerist values, the values of um, I don't know, the, the, uh, the values of the worldly, the mundane. So uh, this, is, uh, this is this, this practice, this grass hut that he's talking about. So the grass hut is a metaphor for how do we find our personal space for practice? Okay. Um, and we can come back to any of these lines, but... Um, the next line is very important. Though the hut is small and includes the entire world. So when you sit on your sabuton or your chair or however you express Buddha in your body. So zazen is, a, is our way of um, sitting like Buddha in this body-mind. We express Buddha in our body. Zazen is kind of a performance art. We're performing Buddha in this body-mind. We're expressing, you know, the Buddha that is our body-mind somehow. And so in, uh, in a Zendo, there's always a Buddha in the center and Manjushri usually, or sometimes it's just Manjushri, Bodhisattva wisdom, in a large temple where there's a Buddha hall somewhere else where the Buddha is. But um, we sit like Buddha, upright, breathing, calm, upright, whatever upright means in your body. So we all have curved spines, but how do we sit Calmly, and though you know the space of our, you know, on our zabaton or on our chair, wherever, is small. It includes the entire world. Wherever you are sitting right now, the whole world is there. Even if you're not in your in a zendo, when you're sitting in your room at home or in your little. Zoom cube, uh, everything's there. Everybody you've ever known is there. It's been a long time since I've seen Rose from Fairfax. Hi, Rose. Uh, she's one of my students who I gave lay ordination to, my old Sangha in the Bay Area. And Paul is my old Sangha. Hi. Um, but they're always with me. And people I knew in third grade are with me. And my fifth grade teacher is always with me, even though I didn't like her so much. And, you know, everybody you've ever known is with you in some way. And, of course, your parents and, you know, teachers and old lovers and childhood pets and, you know, every, every, everything that ever everybody you've ever known, and even people you maybe just met at a party once, in some way are part of what you are on your seat right now. So 
though the hut is small, it includes the entire world, and even people you, you've never known. People, and now, you know, with the internet and with Zoom and, you know, in my, in my sangha in Chicago, so I was going to talk about this um, when we got to the line about will this hut perish or not, but I understand that you've given up your, your, your temple space in the North Shore. And we've given up our temple. We're giving up our temple space in Chicago. Um, we can't afford to pay rent on something that we can't occupy. So we have this Zoom temple, <laughs> whatever this is. Um, and um, but still, um, wherever we are practicing includes the entire world. And then uh, uh, the next line, in 10 feet square, an old man illuminates forms in their nature. How do we illuminate? How do we see? How do we express and bring light to all of these forms and their nature? I want to talk about this 10 feet square, though. This is a kind of... um, Buddhist Zen slogan. Um, do some, do, how many of you know about the Vimalakirti Sutra? Some of you do. So this is a really, this is one of the most entertaining um, Buddhist sutras about a, a, a great enlightened layman, supposedly in Shakyamuni Buddha's time. And there's a whole, there's, there's lots of stories, but um, um, Anyway, what, one, of the, one of the stories is that he was sick and he, um, uh, the Buddha sent all of the, his disciples and bodhisattvas to go call on him. And um, long story short, they all went and um, led by Manjushri, the bodhisattva of wisdom. And he lived in this small room is where he was sick. And they all fit in this small room. And... Um, This hut was this. This sutra was very popular in China because he was an enlightened layman, and in China they they had uh, lay, lay people were, you know, uh, important. And and so one of so the emperor sent an emissary to go check out the this hut in this this room of of Himalakirtis in India in the city where Himalakirti was supposed to supposed to have lived, and so this this uh, monk went to. India, all the way to India, and asked, he went to Vaishali, where, where Vimalakirti was supposed to be, and asked, oh, where was, where's the place where Vimalakirti lived? And, you know, the Indian people there kind of laughed, because, you know, in, in Indian sutras are, you know, metaphorical, and, you know, they didn't, they didn't take these things literally. Um, there's a lot more to say about that, but they showed him to some space, and, and he measured it, and it was 10 feet square. So he went back to China and told them, and that's and that all those all those disciples and bodhisattvas who called on Vimalakirti fit into this ten feet square room. And in Sino-Japanese, that that's uh, hojo. So in Japan, all uh, monks, all abbots' quarters are called hojo, and abbots are referred to as hojo because of, of Vimalakirti's. Uh, um, 
room, which is was supposedly ten feet square. So it's kind of a joke. But um, but uh, Shito here says in ten feet square. This refers to the Vimalakirti's room, where all these bodhisattvas and, and disciples fit in to ask after after Vimalakirti's health. Um, and there's a, there's a lot more to say about the, about that story. But anyway. In ten feet square, and all man illumines forms in their nature. So, but this also then is a is a kind of a reference to this small hut that, um, and and there were you know. So I, sh- I should have said at the beginning there were many um, in China and in Japan there were many uh, hermit uh, uh, priests and monks and, and poets who actually did build these small grass huts, some of them are very famous, like Han Shan, great poet in China, and Ryokan, uh, 19th century Japanese Soto monk, who's a great poet, and who actually lived in small huts like this. But as I was saying, there's, there are also these hermitages that are really large, that, and, and the hojo, the abbot's quarters, it can be very large, um, even though it's called a, a ten, uh, an on, uh, uh, you know, it's supposedly had 10 feet. Anyway, so the point is that um, though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. Um, so um, I, I want to keep, I want to move along. Uh, a Mahayana Bodhisattva trusts without doubt. Um, the middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? So uh, trusting without doubt uh, the whole question of questioning uh, a Mahayana Bodhisattva has faith without doubt, uh, which is not to say that they don't question. Uh, so he's, so uh, Shito says, the middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hair perish or not? Um, you know, in, in Zen, there's sometimes uh, more in Rinzai, they, add, they talk about the great doubt. And that's supposed to be uh, an impetus to, um, you know, developing some intense uh, questioning about koans and so forth. But, you know, questioning is helpful. It's part of our practice. So, uh, but there's also, there's a, there's a kind of right questioning and there's a kind of unhelpful kind of questioning. In, in, uh, the, in Abhidharma, there's skept- what's called skeptical doubt. So if you're, questioning in a way that that is corrosive to your practice that's not so helpful so a mahayana bodhisattva has faith that is that includes questioning but uh, uh, so it doesn't have this kind of skeptical doubt but then then shito here says the middling or lowly can't help wondering will this hut perish or not so in my chicago sangha and, in, and for you guys, our our, um, our hut has perished. <laughs> uh, actually, I guess you you let go of your temple a little while ago, right? Uh, we're we're letting our we're abandoning our wonderful little storefront temple. Uh, Paul has visited it uh, in in North Central Chicago, and and uh, Joan has visited it um, when it, when the lease expires at the end of December. And we'll just be on Zoom. Well, we're we're effectively just on Zoom. So, will this Zoom <laughs> temple perish or not? Well, um, perishable or not, the original master is present. 
So how do we find a practice place, a place of what, what is it that is our practice place that is perishable or not, where the original master is present? This is a, this is a real question. So this isn't the first time that, you know, uh, temples have perished, you know. Uh, in Dogen's time, there was civil war. Dogen had to abandon his temple in Kyoto and head to the hills and move north to the mountains in northern Japan. We don't really know why. Uh, It may may be just that he was offered a better situation in the northern mountains, or he may have been chased away by some of the established um, schools in Kyoto. But, you know, there was civil war at times in China. Um, You know, we're living in difficult times. I mean, that's, that's clear. Um, so we have now headed into Zoom, <laughs> uh, and here we are. And uh, we're still practicing together somehow. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's funny. I don't, are you guys doing all-day sittings or anything like that? You are? Yeah, every month. Wow. Well, I, you know, I, I, I need to talk to you, Joan, because I, 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 we're not doing that yet. Uh, I, I, um, I don't, somehow I can't, I, you know, we do, we sit sometimes, you know, before Dharma talks or in the morning, every morning, five days a week on Zoom. And that's cool. But I, somehow I can't, I, I don't feel like an all day sitting, not in the same room. But anyway, maybe we'll, we're going to be experimenting with what we can do on Zoom in the next year because that's where we are. Um, and I miss Sashin. <laughs> but uh, um, how do we find our place of practice? So again, this song on the grass hut, this song is about how to find our place of practice. And how do we do it, you know, in the Zoom world? We're, we're experimenting. Lots of people are experimenting with this. Um, And how do we see that the original master is present? You know, we could say the original master is Shakyamuni or, you know, know, what is the original master? How is Buddha here? And one of the things about Zoom, uh, at least in a Dharma talk like this, I can see your faces, all of you. When I'm sitting in our Zendo in Chicago, you know, we're all in the same room and we're breathing the same air. But, you know, people sitting across the room, I can't see their faces as well as I can see your faces now. So, you know, they're, it's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, Zoom in Chicago, there's, there are people from a dozen different states who come sometimes in a couple of different foreign countries. So it's interesting. What is then going to be in here? You know, I'm talking to you and, some of you are in Boston. Is this is that where you are now? <laughs> the Boston area. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so um, something's happening, but we don't know what it is. Anyway, perishable or not, the original master is present, not dwelling south or north, east or west. Firmly based on steadiness, it can't be surpassed. So this is really important. How do we find steadiness in the midst of the strangeness of the pandemics in this Zoom world. How do we find our steadiness 
How do we find calm and resilience? We need that because our practice allows us to find that. Not that we don't have questions sometimes, not that we don't feel uh, anxiety and question and uh, what's going to happen, you know, we can feel that. But our practice lets us feel some calm and some steadiness and some resilience and just as, and, and allows us to return to our breath and to enjoy our breath. And when we do that, and as we go out into our worlds, or we don't go out, but with the people who we interact with, uh, even if they're not so-called Zen students, um, we share that. And that's part of the point. That's Maybe that's the whole point. So... Um, Firmly based on steadiness, it can't be surpassed. The shining window below the green pines is a technical term. Um, he says jade palaces of Vermilion Towers can't compare with it. Uh, a sh- uh, this is a Chinese uh, cultural term. The window below the pines is a term for study. For study. So this is a term used by the uh, literati or the... Uh, uh, government uh, ministers for study. Uh, so uh, in some ways, uh, we're studying ourselves, as Dogen says, to study the ways to study ourselves. But it's also about, literally, that's a term borrowed from people studying texts, as we're doing now. Then there's, so I, 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 uh, I, I'm uh, taking more time than I thought I would. Uh, just sitting with head covered, all things are at rest. Uh, so this uh, just sitting is not the same characters as Dogen's uh, Shikantaza, but it means just sitting. It's, uh, but then with head covered, all things are at rest. This head covered is a, is an, a reference to Bodhidharma. So you may have seen references to Bodhidharma, the Indian monk who came to China and suppose, legendary monk who supposedly founded uh, Chan and sat in a cave uh, for nine years and there are images of him with a quilt over his head. So that's, that's what this is a reference to with head covered, but it also metaphorically means with our head covered without, you know, um, without, without thinking a lot, you know, not, not just sitting physically. This is a yogic practice. It's just sitting. It's not about thinking a lot or figuring things out. Thoughts come, of course, and you know they're like the clouds in the blue sky. <laughs> we don't have to. We don't have to get caught up by them. Thus, this monk doesn't understand at all. So, this mountain monk is a is a way as a way that um, Zen monks talk about themselves. This mountain monk doesn't understand at all. So, you know, in a way, he's bragging. But um, uh, there's a this not knowing is um, kind of Zen slogan. You know. Not to know, as uh, as Shito said, not to know, not to attain, is the essential meaning of Zen. So, of course, there's lots of things that we understand. We all, each of you has a lot of, I'm sure, a lot of uh, bodies of knowledge, and that's okay. 
And uh, one of the 10 paramitas is, is to use knowledge for the benefit of all beings. But ultimately, we don't understand it all. So uh, uh, Zen literature is, is, so Genjo Koan, for example, uh, which maybe you've talked about Dogen's writing, where he talks about different perspectives. So when you go out into the middle of uh, the ocean and look around, you don't, you don't see the shoreline. And you think it's just round. Or um, when you go, when, when you see the water, uh, humans see it one way, fish see it another way, dragons see it yet another way. Hungry ghosts see it you know, differently. So uh, the limitations of human perspectives and human understanding and human um, uh, faculties. So ultimately, in terms of ultimate reality, uh, we're, we're limited in our understanding, so we don't really understand it all. Uh, I want to I keep going so we have some time for comments or questions living here he no longer works to get free so this is this is when we when we settle into this space of not being caught up in thinking we have to figure everything out so we have to understand completely living here we no longer need to work to get free it's not about making some effort to figure everything out no longer work to get free, just being present. Uh, Dogen talks about presencing as a verb, to bring ourselves to be present with everything, just to see this as this, just to breathe and enjoy our breathing, to feel how we feel, to feel this body as we sit upright. No longer working to get free, and then there's this interesting line, who would proudly arrange seats trying to entice guests. So there are many great, there are many great Zen masters historically who had, you know, didn't have huge, I mean, Shinto had a large monastery with a lot of people. I don't remember how many. There were great Zen masters who had like eight students or five students. It's not a matter of how many, you know, guests you can entice. Um, uh, Okay, uh, turn around the light to shine within, then just return. Uh, maybe uh, if we're getting to, to the end of this, would uh, who, uh, whoever's doing this, please uh, share the text on the screen again. So this is one of the most important lines in, there's several, but one of the most important lines in the text. Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. This, this line... Um, it's, uh, I don't know, two-thirds of the way down, three-quarters of the way down. Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. In some ways, encapsulates all of Zen practice. Turn around the light to shine within is a traditional uh, Zazen instruction. Sometimes it's take the backward step to turn the light inwardly and illuminate the self. Dogen says it that way sometimes. Turn around the light to shine within. That's the Zazen instruction. So we, in Zazen, we focus within. We focus our attention, our light within. But then he says, then just return. This is the essential rhythm of Zen practice. We, uh, so um, just in a period of Zazen, 
we turn the light within. But then we come, we return, we come, we stand up, we, we leave the Zendo or we leave the, the Zoom room and we go back out into our world. Or, um, you know, if you do an all-day sitting, you turn the light within to shine, just to uh, attend, to pay attention to this situation, and then just return, go back out and express that in your everyday activity. Or in the rhythm of practice period, if you go to a practice period at a place like Tassajara, for example. Uh, Joan, you were at Tassajara, weren't you? So I was there for a few years. So even, you know, going into a, a, into a practice, peri- practice period or monastery uh, is about going for some extended period and turn, turning the light within. And Sashin, too, turning the light within for a week or whatever, a few, or five days. But then we return out to our life in the world. This is the basic rhythm of Zen practice. Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. This one line is the rhythm of all of Zen practice. And how long you go, how long you turn around the light to shine within can vary. But then always we just return. So in um, Zen monastic practice, uh, unlike, you know, I guess in Catholic monastic practice, this happens sometimes too, but in, in Christian or Catholic monastic system, you know, monks go in for life. In Buddhist monastic practice, some some there are some people at Tassajara who've been there a, little, a real long time, but mostly you go there for a while and then you come back out and and uh, go to the north shore of uh, Massachusetts and lead a group. Share. We return, and then he says the vast inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from. So in the Jewel Mare Samadhi, Dongshan says turning away and touching are both wrong. It's the same two, same characters there. Literally, it's turning your back. We can't grasp it in in the Jewel Mare Samadhi. He says it's like a massive fire, turning away and touching, they're both wrong. We can't ignore it. We can't turn away from it. We can't turn our back on it. We can't really get a hold of it either. So this vast, inconceivable source, Shuto says, can't be faced or turned away from. How do we stay present right near it? We can't, we can't really look at it. We can't really turn away from it either. So how do we stay near it? So this is this is this is how this uh, turning turning the light to shine within, and then and then returning this 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 dance, this basic dance of Zen practice. Meet the ancestral teachers. Be familiar with their instructions. So that's what we're doing. We're meeting this ancestral teacher Shito Chuchan, and looking at his instructions. And these kinds of Teaching poems, you know, uh, there's no end to studying them. You know, uh, some of the, these teaching, we, we chant them because each time we look at them, there's more to, to see. Um, he says, be familiar with their instructions. But that means, being familiar means really uh, 
being being intimate with them, uh, coming back to them again and again, like the sutras are like studying Dogen, you know, you can, or like reading the Zen mind, beginner's mind. You know, you can go back to it again and again. And then he says, bind grasses to build a hut and don't give up. So the point of our practice is just to continue. Set up your practice places. Find grasses to build a hut. Metaphorically, find your way to sit upright wherever you can do that, even if it's on in Zoom. Don't give up. Keep coming back. And then my favorite line in the whole song is next. Let go. So first he says, don't give up. And then he says, let go. And the next word, don't give up and let go together. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. So if you walk into the middle of a, of a, of a Zendo, in the middle of a session, it doesn't look like those people are relaxing completely. <laughs> they look really, you know, it's, uh, it looks very stoic. But really, the point of our practice is to relax completely. So whoever's got the, the uh, text up, you can take that away now. I want to see you all. Let's see if you relaxed completely. So in the middle of session, it feels like, you know, your knees are hurting, your back is hurting, or, you know. But the point of this practice is to relax completely. I've seen that a few times. Somebody sitting zazen. Maybe more than a few times. But I first noticed it when there was a, at, at uh, the Green Gold Sendo and Baker Roshi was speaking and there was this visiting Rinzai teacher. He was sitting sort of so in, in between where I was and Baker Roshi was. And it was just... I just noticed it. He was sitting upright, but he was relaxed completely. I could see it. And let go of hundreds of years means, you know, part of what's, you know, maybe what's most difficult when we're doing zazen is that hundreds of years of karma, you know, maybe hundreds of lifetimes of karma comes up, our, our patterns of grasping and anger and confusion, greed, hate, and delusion, our own particular patterns in our body, you know, that stuff is, you know, there in our shoulder blades and in our lower back and in our knees or wherever, you know, and it comes up and we see it. And sometimes you can just let go of things, you know, third day of session. Mostly you have to kind of befriend it, get to know it, Know it so well that you don't have to act on it and react to it. So let go of hundreds of years and and relax completely. This takes a lot of work to relax completely. (laughs) This is why this is a yogic practice. And the point is just to continue. Don't give up. Open your hands and walk innocent. So um, Uchiyama Roshi talks about opening the hands of thought. Thousands of words, myriad interpretations are only to free you from obstructions. So all the, so, you know, Zen is supposed to be 
this teaching beyond words and letters. And some, there are Zen teachers, you know, uh, I sat with one in Japan who was, you know, wouldn't let his students read anything. If magazines came in the mail, they would be confiscated. And uh, some of the, some of the Americans who were practicing there wanted to, had to get special permission to get language books so they could, because he couldn't speak English. They wanted to study Japanese and they had to get special permission to get books to study Japanese because they weren't allowed to read anything. So that's a little bit, you know, fundamentalist. Actually, you know, this uh, beyond words and letters doesn't mean not studying. And particularly in Suzuki Roshi's lineage, uh, we study. But the point of studying, and, and there's libraries full of, of uh, Zen commentaries on, not on, on how to go beyond words and letters. But... Uh, <laughs> um, the point of all the studying and all the texts is just to encourage us to practice, to relax completely. And some people are more, you know, some of us are more intellectual or whatever. And I happen to be an academic, so, oh, well, I'm stuck with it. But um, anyway, um, thousands of words, married interpretations are only to free you from obstructions. If you want to know the undying person in the hut, the person in the hut who in the in the in the zendo who's un, who's beyond conditioning, who's beyond life and death, who's not caught by inside, outside, or in between by life and death. Don't separate from this skin bag here and now. So skin bag is a kind of um, Zen jargon for this body. And when we first started chanting this in my temple, my sangha in Chicago, one of one of my wonderful students was very offended to think that she was a skin bag. <laughs> she just had so much trouble with that. <laughs> anyway, I would encourage all you skin bags to just relax completely. So I'm sorry I've taken up so much time just um, blabbering about all this. I still have a few minutes. If anybody has a comment or question about anything I've said, um, please let me know. Raise your hands. What a delight, Tygen. I'm going to break the ice here. I hope people will speak, so I'm not going to speak long. But Tygen, thank you so much. This is so wonderful to kind of break this down line by line. I think I mentioned to you that we chant this on Fridays. So we'll be chanting this tomorrow morning and we'll be thinking of you. Um, The question I've been having, where does this text appear in, in, in Shitu's life? Was this toward the end of his life that he wrote this or was, where does this figure? Like, especially with regard to the Sandokai. No, no, I don't think there's any, I don't, it's there. It appears in the Taisho, in the, um, you know, in the, um, you know, in the record of, of his life, but I, I, in, in the texts of um, Zen, but I don't know. I don't think we know. Mm. It's interesting because in my mind, it's always kind of a seasoned practitioner who just relaxes into his or her being after all that effort, all those decades of effort, you know, as you said, the Sandokai is, it's got a very different quality. 
from the Song of the Grass Hut. Yeah, I imagine this was later after the Sandokai. The Sandokai, again, is like this really uh, seminal uh, philosophical, uh, you know, basic philosophy of Zen uh, and very, very important. This is more like, again, how to find your, your space of practice. So, you know, it, it's talking about a grass hut, but it's really about your, your Zazen seat. Here's us and body. So, but you know, we don't we don't know so we, you know we have these stories, but we don't know so much uh, about you know the history of and of Shizu's life. So, thank you. I really encourage people to it maybe be, yeah, John, great. Thank, thank you. Uh, I really like Chateau, and it, it was very helpful to uh, step through this. I have two questions. One of them's kind of pedantic, and one of them's maybe a little bit more to the point of the meaning of the text. The pedantic one is that in Chinese, was this poem a formal poem with rhyme, meter, and rules sort of for tones, or is it a free verse poem? I don't know enough Chinese to know about tones, but yeah, it's. Uh, I have the Chinese here, and yeah, it's it is a formal poem. It's uh, each line is uh, it's a seven character line. Each line, uh, well, there are some exceptions. Some of the lines are six, so he breaks that a little bit. But it's basically seven character lines. So it's it is a formal um, uh, poetic scheme. So, but I don't know about tone, so I can't really say. Um, the, the more question, more to the point. And uh, this is one of these questions where I'll reveal myself to be a bad Buddhist again. Um, but, you know, you're talking about, you know, neither inside, outside, nor in between. And and this sounds very much like this weird Indian logic of the tetralemma, you know, not birth, not death, not birth and death, and so on and so forth. And when I, when I hear this stuff, you know, it to me, it often just sounds like, oh, here's the Zen master trying to out-Zen somebody, somebody else with the rhetorical you know, flourish, maybe saying it's a little bit past your logical mind and stuff like that. But, you know, it kind of kind of pisses me off some, somehow. And I just, you know, wonder sometimes if there's really anything behind it or, hey, it's just words and I'm just out zenning everybody else. Well, you know, he's challenging you, you know. So, um, I don't know, it's, po- it's poetic and it's, you know, it's rhetorical. and But it's also, uh, if you take it on, if you take it on, it's, it's a real, you know, you can take it, you might, you, you are welcome to take it on as a real question, or you can say, well, it's just rhetorical, you know, and it's not, it's not, maybe it's not the most interesting line in the, in the whole, in the whole song. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yes, Wendy. Hi, thank you so much. I, I love this poem and it's such a treat to, to hear hear you talk about it. I have a question about the word illumines. Um, near the beginning, an old man illumines forms in their nature. Is that important? Why? What's he doing? Uh, hold on. I'm, uh, let me find it. This is the one in 10 square feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I can find the character. Yeah, it just means to... Um, um, I will find um, uh, 
I mean, this this is my translation, so it could, might be translated otherwise, but it's, I'm trying to find the character. Um, uh, and... Um, I can't find it here, but anyway, it's, um, oh, wait a second. Yeah, it's just, it's, it just, uh, it it means to clarify, to, um, um, to, uh, to light up. I mean, it has, it has just, just the English word to talk about that. It, It, it implies to, um, you know, forms in their nature means to look at reality and to, um, oh, I, I found it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It actually could might be translated as to liberate forms in their nature. Um, so it's um, to um, reveal, to illuminate, to shine, uh, to make clear. All of those meanings are implied. One of the things about the Chinese characters is that they have a, a lot of overtones. So to translate them, you have to choose, you know, one word. But actually, often uh, the, there could be, you know, multiple uh, multiple meanings involved. And in the Chinese, they're all there. And in English, English is more precise, fortunately and unfortunately. So. Uh, in that case, it means uh, it, it also means to clarify, to liberate, to uh, uh, you know, to light up. So, thank but, you. But to look at to look at forms and their nature. I don't know how. I don't know what the timing is. I think this. no. We've got a little bit more time. I think Rose had a question or a comment. Yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to thank you all for having this opportunity to hear Taigan teach again. It's been years. And this was always one of my favorite um, chants that we did when we Mountain Source practiced together. And when I first heard it, I just laughed out loud when we got to the skin bag part because <laughs> I just loved it. And I've always loved, I really like this. I actually have a book called Inside the Grass Hut that yes. um, oh, I should mention that. Ed Connolly wrote, and uh, Tygen has the introduction, which I found at Tassahara a couple summers ago. Anyway, this has been a, a very precious um, chant to me uh, personally. So I, I would just, I'm really happy for this opportunity. And my only question is what's with the eye patch? Oh, yeah, this is, a, I had a retinal detachment. I, uh, a couple of years ago, and after several surgeries, uh, I, you know, I, I can sort of see with it, but it's real blurry. So if I want to see clearly, I just wear it for reading and for you know, it's a, it's okay. It's just yeah, I can see clearly with that eye. So, so okay. I'm okay. But it's great to Go see you, Rose. And uh, a couple of plugs. Um, uh, so Ben Connolly is a, a young priest from the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center, and he wrote this book about this. Um, uh, it's a good. It's a good book. It's a practice book 
inside the grass hut about this chant. Um, and so because he wrote that book, I didn't have to write a book about this, this chant. <laughs> I would have written a different book, but, you know, it, anyway. Yeah, so I recommend that book, Inside the, Gra- Inside the Grass Hut. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, uh, how to how you he applies it to modern day life, you know, living in the modern world. And I, I just read it very slowly and I've just re- happened to restart reading it. So um, that's one reason I signed up to do this. It's a, it's a good book. But if, if I may, Joan, another plug, uh, you're all welcome to come to another Zoom at the Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. Uh, go to ancientdragon.org, and we have Sunday morning and Monday evening uh, Chicago time Dharma talks, and and we have lots of other things going on too, morning zazens and all kinds of other stuff. And uh, so you're all welcome to check out ancientdragon.org and come to our events there. We will check that out. And you know, many people know Lori because Lori comes every year for people who don't know for, to help us with sewing. She's our sewing teacher and training Jikan to be a sewing teacher. Um, and also just this diaspora. It's so beautiful. People here know Ben Connolly. Also he's visited twice since center North shore, but I don't, I don't think he ever spoke on the grass hut. He has spoken a couple, few times that ancient dragon. Yeah. And we have a, a so I'll, an, another plug is that at ancientdragon.org, you can go to our, our um, uh, podcast archives, and there are lots and lots of, I think, 700-some different talks, people like Rebecca Solnit and, and, oh, wow. and Peter Coyote and Joan Amaral and <laughs> Norman Fisher. And, and um, anyway, uh, so... Um, you can check out that too. We'll do that. We'll we'll visit you. We can zoom in to Chicago. But I want to just take a backward step again because we have a few more minutes, and it okay. is such a joy and a delight and an honor to have you here. So Kate and then Lita, I think, had questions. Hi, Kate. Hello. Uh, thank you so much. This was so wonderful to go line by line, and there's there's something that. Uh, you know, with the Zoom world we're in, this this sort of interesting concept of, uh, you know, the, the in-between or not in-between here and there, that just, it, it's like a different form. And um, my question is about the, the sitting, you know, the sitting in Zazen, you know, against the wall or, or in a wall and in the Zendo, that was a very kind of grounding way for me to sit Zazen, but now I, I kind of look out the window and, and we're all looking in all these different positions. But I, I wondered, was that orthodox always? And like, even in the, the situation of this song, the, the, the expectation of sitting kind of with the wall or not, or, and if maybe this Zoom situation might have an effect on that um, practice. Yeah. So, um, you know, when we started doing sitting at Ancient Dragon in Chicago, people would sit like this during Zazen facing the screen, but we, it, we realized at some point that that's really distracting. So what we're, our form is now to, when you enter the screen, to I don't know what you do here, but to bow and then face away from the screen. 
for Zazen, except for maybe the te- except for the teacher and maybe the, the speaker that then we faced together. But you know, in India, um, they didn't. They they the monks wandered around except during the rainy season when they, when they'd come together and sit with the Buddha. But they would sit facing a tree when they were wandering around. Um, they would, um, but in China, they they started having meditation halls. That didn't happen in India. That happened in China, and then it continued in Japan. So that there was a particular form for the monastery that developed in China. Um, so yeah, facing a wall is part of the tradition, you know. Bodhidharma sat facing a wall in a cave. Um, but, you know, I, in some ways, if you've been doing that for a while, so I, you know, when I'm sitting in, when, back when we had a long, long time ago when we had a temple on a Zendo in Chicago, I, w- I was sit facing out and face, and Patrick, maybe you do that and did that in Santa Cruz. So I would face, you know, to see, you know, how everybody is, but, you know, fix, sitting facing the floor, it's the same as facing the wall after a while. Uh, so I have a story from the Shiso ceremony, but I won't go into it. It's a long story, but facing the, uh, you know, at some point after a while, you're always facing the wall. <laughs> Lita, did you have something? We have a couple more minutes. I, uh, I don't have a question. I just wanted to, um, I'm grateful you're here, Tegan, and I'm grateful that I was able to make it. And it was an, an, an enjoyable experience. And um, I, I like, uh, I have this affinity with the grass hut because I've often referred to my house or apartment as a grass hut. It's this rundown um, building. And, and so I often called it a grass hut. But um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, what's coming up for me is it includes the whole world. Yes. Because this particular space that I'm in right now, home, for me has been the most difficult place to sit still. I can sit zazen in the zendo and, or, or in the woods or at the beach or anywhere else. And uh, it, it's often an, an, an enjoyable, pleasant experience. Wasn't always was a lot of work in the beginning, but at home is when all the hundred years of stuff comes up. Whether it's the um, screeching of the cows out the window or the dog barking to come into this space, or, or or my kid telling me to shut up when I'm chanting, or or the gym across the street with their Zumba pump. And it is it does include the whole world. And um, and, and uh, so illumining illumin forms in their natures, noticing what's coming and up, coming up when all this is happening in this entire world. Like, well, I hear the screeching and the banging out the window. What's coming up inside of me is is like this bodily experience. Maybe it's a bit tense or or uh, tension. But then, but then, but then there's also what's going on outside too. What's causing me to feel like that? And then there's the space in between. And that's the space of practice, the breathing, and noticing what's happening. There's a lot going on there, 
I got to go. I can hear it. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's a really important, interesting point. Maybe in between is the breath. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, I mean, th- there's some people who come to a sitting place and they've been sitting for a long while at home and and they've never sat uh, in a group before. I've, I've, you know, I've met people like that and they're used to sitting at home and they come to a sangha and, you know, that's interesting. There's other people. I remember uh, a guy who'd, been, who'd lived at Green Gulch for numbers of years, but he had never sat on his own outside of the Zendo. And I just thought that was really strange. Um, and then, you know, all of the, so, you know, for me, when I sit at, at home, there's so many distractions. There's all the things, all the projects I'm, I'm working on. And, you know, it's, it's easy to be distracted, but I, you know, okay, I can sit and face the wall or, you know. Um, I think the point of practice is to not find some pure place where there's no sound and no, no distractions. The point of practice is, you know, thoughts come up, the, the, the blue sky is not disturbed by the white clouds drifting, right? The, 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 to be able to sit in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a crazy election, in the middle of confronting systemic racism, in the middle of how do we find our way to be present? I remember uh, somebody, uh, somebody, uh, a priest, uh, Tassaharas, uh, Joan knows her, um, who was really upset when she could hear the sound of the generator uh, near the Zendo, like it was supposed to be pure and no sounds. And <laughs> it's funny, you know, <laughs> you know, so going off, Tassahara is as close to, um, you know, there's no, ambient light at night and there's in this really quiet except for the sound of the creek and you know um i, I sat next to a guy who a german guy who's uh who was his father was a uh symphony uh a concert uh musician and this poor guy and then uh he would hear in the sound of the creek uh beethoven symphony <laughs> And it would stop in the middle and it would drive him nuts. <laughs> so, you know, whatever's going on in the wor- in our, in our, around our grass hut or inside our grass hut or in the thoughts and feelings coming up, how do we stay present and upright and calm in the middle of being in the world? That's the point. And that's what we, and that's what, you know, I think we have to offer to the people in the world around us, even if they don't practice, just as an example of being present and calm and resilient and, and responding appropriately to the suffering in the world from that place. So finding some ultimate purity is not, you know, the point. My favorite koan is, comes from a great American yogi who said, if the world were perfect, it wouldn't be.
this was a great American League yogi. Anyway, um, some of you know who he was. <laughs> um, anyway, um, do I have time for one more question or comment? You know, I was beginning to feel like I was taking advantage of you here. If you're up for it, it it, it feels like it's just a wonderful conversation that's getting going, but it is getting late. Maybe one more question or comment if anybody has anything. I'm here. I may as well. <laughs> you're an hour behind us, right? It's only 730 your time. Yeah. For us, it's the late hour of 830. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, you know, Tygen, since you're up for it and I don't see a hand, I do want to share with you that um, when we first started chanting this, there was a young man who came to our practice place for the very first time who had just been released from prison. Mm -hmm. And when he heard this text, he felt that it was talking about him. Ten square feet reminded him of his prison cell. Sure. And then last night I was on a panel which – was looking at the culture of incarceration in Massachusetts, but generally speaking. And I was thinking about this, this line again, the line that you love and the two lines that I love, um, let go of hundreds of years and relax completely, open your hands and walk innocent. Just in the spirit of not giving up on anybody, how we might divide the world up, you know, the, the whole mindset around how we view people who are incarcerated and how without even knowing it, we're dehumanizing them. Um, So this always comes up for me every time we chant this. I think about this young man who had been released from prison. Thank you, Clint. Um, And uh, you used the word liberation, I think, when you were talking about that line that Wendy asked about illumines liberating forms in their nature. Anyway, there's just so much there. Thank you so much for illuminating this for us, uh, just with your presence and with all of your inquiry, your your years and years and years of study and dedication. What a, what a treasure you are. Thank you so much, Ty, again. Thank you, thank you, everybody, for being here to witness this and to participate and to enact it, to bring it alive. So we're going to end by chanting the Pali Refuges, and we'll bring those up um, so that we can all and our practice day together. They're in the chat. Buddham Saranam Gachami Dhamam Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranagachami Dutiyampi Buddham Saranagachami Dutiyampi Dhamam Saranam Gachami Dutiyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami 
Tatiampi Buddham Sarnam Gachami Tatiampi Dhamam Sarnam Gachami Tatiampi Sangam Sarnam Gachami